Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. David McLean and... Jan Goldsmith and a regular to this program. A regular. Because Carly Ladd, has, this is her fifth time back. Welcome back, Carly. <laughs> Thank you so much for always having me back, Jan. Well... You write so well about the complexities of families that I'm just delighted. And this new one, The Way Back. The plot of this book, though, is something that you've experienced. Yes, in, in some ways, yes. Look, The Way Back is, an, is about an abduction. It's not just about an abduction. It's really about the aftermath of an abduction. And I certainly haven't experienced an abduction myself, but uh, when I was a child, a classmate was abducted. Look, it's just whenever you hear or read about, you know, the missing people that turns into, is it abduction, is it kidnap or whatever, the police, of course, are involved and you know, they have to bring in the media and there's always good and bad about the media. There always is. I mean, something like this, you need the media. Of course, your tip-offs are usually going to come from a member of the public, particularly for awards being offered or something like that. But uh, so, so the media are necessary, but they can turn on you too. And that was also something I wanted to explore in the book. Well, of course, that human interest yeah. which, which the media has mm-hmm. and all the readers have too does become paparazzi. Yes, it does, doesn't it? It, certainly, it starts off being serious journalism, but it, it morphs into new idea and new yeah, magazine and, after and then, a while. And you know, if they can't get the facts of a story... There's alleged sources. That's right. They'll just, exactly, make it up. Fake news. Right. (laughs) And, of course, with mourning, and we bring it close to families here, it's much, well, is it, if you've got a body, you can have a funeral and um, and you can move on. Move yes, on. yeah. Look, the, the mother in this book, after her daughter has been missing for a while, finds herself. Uh, it was a line that came to me that that Rachel would wake up and find herself wishing for bones. Mm. No mother wants her child dead, but Rachel has had it after you know a number of months have gone by, and it seems quite certain that her daughter is dead. There's been no sign of her and no trace of her, and and Rachel just cannot imagine living with an unresolved grief for the rest of her life and, yeah, wishes her daughter dead, I guess, in some well, ways. Well, and of course that grief, you know, it, it carries you all the time. And can you work with that grief? Oh, look, I have I have no idea how people live with that grief. The, <gasps> the girl that was kidnapped or abducted, we don't really know what happened to her. Um, it was a famous case, the, the girl from my youth, Eloise Warlich. People of my era, well, of my age or, or yours will still remember that case. And nothing was ever found of her. A shocking case. And, and 35 years, 40 years, 40 it would be now, 40 years later, her mother is still alive and still living in, in the suburb, which is where I grew up. And I, I just don't know how mm. you go on with that not knowing day after day after day. Well, we don't know, but if uh, people would Troubled people would call out for professional help. You'd hope so. And I I sort of think, well, in this story, The Way Back, we have different degrees of of psychologists that are called in, but also psychics. Yes. (laughs) Well, look, again, I wanted to explore that because I think when you are desperate, desperate times call for desperate measures and people will try or do anything they can in a situation like this where they're completely out of control, anything to get a little bit of control or hope or something back. Well, through the story, so many of these issues we read about firsthand. The book is written in three parts, before, 
during and after. In before we meet the family, well, tell us a bit about tell us a bit about Charlie herself. Charlie's 13. She's in her first couple of months at high school. Actually, just in her first month, she's just started high school. So she's in that that stage that every young child or goes through where they're working out who they are again. They've, they've moved from primary school where they're, you know, top of the heap and they've moved to high school, which is usually much bigger, a chance to, to make new friends, form a new identity. She's trying to, Charlie's trying to work out who she is and how she fits in. But and she's, she's got a first mixed party. Yes, she's very excited n- about that. Not and spin the bottle anymore. What's it called? <laughs> it's called Three Minutes in Heaven, apparently, and I, I have that on good authority from my own teenage children when I was writing this book. <laughs> and she's at this party she's kissed Liam yes mm. yes Liam's now, the boy she sits next to in science so, Charlie's yeah. got an older brother Dan yeah now, he's 16 but he's a bit different he is a bit different Charlie's basically a fairly happy and relaxed child as I said she's only 13 Dan's 16 and he's struggling a bit I think Dan is a natural introvert anyway but I also suspect I should know this but you just write from hunch mm. I suspect Dan is depressed as well and Dan doesn't quite know why he's depressed and he feels ashamed at being depressed because he knows he has no real reason to be depressed but he still isn't enjoying his life the way that his rest of the rest of his family are enjoying theirs well the mum Rachel mm. she's busy she's got uh, she's got a big job she's curator, got a big job yes curator at the uh, museum yep. she's uh, very organized but let's very just, driven. <laughs> let's just from very early on the book page 13 let's just hear a bit about the mother Rachel Okay, so this is Rachel thinking to herself as she drives out to collect Charlie from Pony Club and she's already running late and she's feeling bad about that. Motherhood, it sometimes seemed, was little more than a gradual accretion of guilt. She should spend more time with her daughter. She should find out if there was anything going on with her son. She should say yes to her husband more often or make an effort to actually reach for him in bed for once rather than it always being the other way around. She should visit her mother. Oh, yes. Now, what mother doesn't know about that? You know, trying to fit everything in, everything in. So her husband, Matt, now he's a fireman. Yes. He was always aware that in the job of being a fireman, this is a quote from the book, the gore that went with work. So he's used to sort of seeing pretty nasty stuff. He is also the house husband when uh, he wasn't working night shift. And I loved how he had achieved Buddhism for house husbands. <laughs> How, what does he do for Buddhism for house husbands? I thought this was so good, Carly. <laughs> I don't actually remember that. He, he gets, when he's putting out all the uh, washing on the uh, line, he's he, very careful about putting the socks together. Right, thank you. <laughs> the Buddhism for house husbands. Matt's he, quite chill and I think yeah. his, his uh, ritual at the line probably helps. Yeah. <laughs> he was sorry that son Dan wasn't in, into footy but knew his job as father was to protect them, look after them and love them. Now, back to Charlie. She's got a best friend, Brita, Brita who calls another friend, another schoolmate, Ivy, a bitch. Yes. This is a, a, she's, Ivy's in a different group at school. But what do Ivy and Charlie have in common? What they have in common is their love of horse riding, and they both ride with the same pony club. But Ivy is... is her family are wealthier than Charlie's and Ivy has their own pony, whereas Charlie's family have leased her a pony from the pony club. And Ivy sort of keeps that over Charlie. Ivy knows that she's got her own horse and Charlie just has a borrowed one and, and Ivy doesn't mind reminding Charlie of that. Um, yes. 
So where's this? where have you set the pony club? The pony club's set in King Lake, in the King Lake National Park, where my own daughter used to ride. Um, she doesn't ride there anymore. She still rides, but not in that area, which is good, given, <laughs> given what <laughs> given happens that. in the book, really. Yeah. Well, so let's move on to the um, second part of the book, During. So what actually happens? Okay, so while Charlie is out riding with Ivy one day, her horse goes lame. Um, Ivy knows that she should stick with Charlie and they're they're not meant to separate. They're riding in the King Lake National Park, which is a big national park. But Ivy can't be bothered with that because Ivy has her own agenda. So she says, look, I'll go back and get help. Even that's that's what she says she's going to do, but she knows she should be staying with Charlie. So she gallops off on her own horse and Charlie's left alone in the national park and encounters a man who's actually been watching her for a while, a man who lives uh, by himself on the outskirts of the park, uh, a lonely and and damaged man, and uh, he's looking for company more than anything else Mm. and ends up taking Charlie for company. Of course, missing, abducted, kidnapped, whatever. Sergeant Terry Blackwell is called in. He's been in the force for 30 years, but he's got his first press conference. So this is Terry at the, yeah, before the press conference is about to start and and just looking at the assembled media, waiting to hear what he's got to say. Did the Johnsons have any idea as to how much worse their life was about to get? Once the pack got a whiff of this, took one look at that photo of Charlie, they'd be onto it like starving jackals. They'd run banner headlines and quote unsourced scuttlebutt. They'd make up stories if they had to and attribute them to a friend of the family. They'd shadow the Johnsons until they were reunited with Charlie and whisk straight to 60 minutes or collapsed and died of grief. So we know that it's three months on and we have poor Sergeant Terry wondering when do they stop searching. Police resources were infinite. The case would never be closed, but it would have to be downgraded. He couldn't bear the idea of Charlie being downgraded, couldn't stomach the thought of telling Rachel and Matt. Mm. So, you know, you've given us a very, um, uh, not, not a particularly... Smart or a city city cop, but a very caring. He's King a country cop, cop, yes, cop. but very caring. And he's had he's he's got a daughter himself, although she's grown up now. But uh, but that oh look, I think I think all police would feel worried and upset in that situation. But yeah, Terry Terry is particularly connected into the parents and what they're going through. Oh yes, and um, Dan's reaction. Well, events have brought Hannah into his life. And the contrast between his delightful consensual sex, mm. the lack of sex between uh, the, the parents. Rachel and Matt, yes. Oh, yes. They couldn't even touch each other or communicate. Yeah. And then there was that thought of what might be happening to Charlie. To Charlie. Mm. Well, you've mentioned this old man. Let's hear a bit about Cole from page 83. Okay. So this is I'm trying to remember what part of the book this is, but I think this is this is right at the start when yes, when right at the start of Cole's interaction with Charlie. Okay. Cole hadn't had chips in a long time. Not the hot ones. Not since Tony had met Robin and moved out because Tony used to buy the chips. It would be good to have chips again, but then he'd have to go into a shop and talk to someone and get the money right, and that was hard and made him nervous. It was better to go to Woolworths and just choose what he wanted and give them the card that his money was on, the money from the accident, even though Woolworths didn't have hot chips. The horse had started to graze and he pulled its head up. They had to get on before it was too dark to find his way home again, but the horse didn't want to go, so he broke off a twig from a tree and hit it with that. That made the horse go. 
Giddy up, horsey, don't you stop, just let your feet go clippity-clop. That was a song his mum used to sing when he was little, but also after the accident when she was trying to teach him how to speak again. She was good, his mum. He missed her. Also his dad, but his dad had been gone for longer, years and years ago now. They'd muddled through, him and his mum. That was what she used to say when she gave him a cup of tea or his dinner. We muddle through, don't we, Cole? And they did. It was nice living with Mum, and then Tony moved back home because Diane threw him out and he didn't have anywhere else to go, but later he met Robin and then he did. He didn't really miss Tony because Tony had the TV up really loud all the time and at night he got drunk and yelled at Cole and called him stupid, so it was better not to have him there. Except sometimes it wasn't because Cole didn't really like living all by himself. It was too quiet and he had no one to talk to. He talked to Blue, but Blue just wagged his tail and ran off to sniff things. It would be good to have a real person to talk to now. Well, the third part of the book is after. Look, screaming, shouting and silence, but everybody has changed. Everybody wanted to know, the police, the media, the parents, except Charlie's friends Britta and brother Dan. Hmm. Why didn't they want to know? I love that you've picked up on that. I think they wanted to know, but I also think they that they just intuit somehow that they shouldn't ask, that Charlie will tell them rather than... They can see she's already being bombarded. The, you know, the minute she's been rescued or been found, she's whisked straight off to interviews. The interviews continue every single day for the first week or so of her release and, and then they're going to get longer and with cameras and all the rest of it. And I think Dan and Britta just know that Charlie doesn't need any more questions. She just needs to be with them. I'm going to read a little bit from two, page 259 because I thought she summed it up beautifully as you spoke it but also wrote it. Such knowledge could only wound and there was no point anyway. It was enough. It was more than enough to have Charlie here in his bedroom. This is Brother Dan speaking, whole and breathing, her still bony body curled around a scruffy cattle dog. Oh, well, we wonder, could Charlie possibly put the anger she must feel and the abuse that she has suffered behind her? Or will it warp and twist the rest of her life? Well, Carly Ladd, we, we'll have to... You'll have every, to find out, won't have you? to find out by reading it. Um, you sort of say that there's Australia has a tradition of the lost child. Yeah, And yeah. this is oh, such a good one. <laughs> Thank oh, you. Oh, look, um, family complexities done fantastically again thank you very much Thanks, Lad. her book is called The Way Back and is published by Alan and Alan well there are parallels with my text Vicky Wakefield's Ballad for a Mad Girl because we have a missing girl in that one as well here we go my novel today touches on the supernatural it is Ballad for a Mad Girl by Vicky Wakefield so Vicky welcome to 3CR thanks David now, your protagonist here, Grace Foley, is the mad girl in question, and there are some conventional reasons why she's mad. What are they? Well, I guess mad has a lot of layers in this story. We're talking mad as in angry, We're talking mad as in maybe a little unhinged. Well, in angry, there are reasons mm. why she's angry. Absolutely. She's angry. She's had a pretty shocking hand dealt her through life. She lost her mother two years ago. Um, she's been taken away from the family farm because the farm is not sustainable and they've had to move into a, a housing estate with her father and her brother. Um, she and her brother have drifted apart. She can't really talk to her dad about how she's feeling. She's under pressure with Year 12. 
and this stuff is all starting to pile up. And the friends at school, the associations are sort of breaking down as they're growing up. So I would sort of call this conventional teenage angst in some ways, but then you start adding layers to this. She's mad because... She takes risks as well. She's got a bit of a reputation. She's always been the prankster in her group. If there's a dare, she's up for it and she'll defend her title in just about anything, including walking the pipe. And the pipe is a a large stormwater pipe at a local disused quarry. It's 40 metres across and 15 metres down and Grace has done this hundreds of times and she's bettered her time every time except for the night that something happens. And there's a bit of rivalry between the schools over who can have the honour of having the fastest time. So there's teenage angst, there's the risk-taking, but then in her last run across the pipe, there's another sense of mad because this is where we sort of delve into the supernatural. She starts feeling or experiencing something other. She does, and she's unable to better her time. In fact, she loses quite spectacularly in front of a large audience, and, of course, that compounds her embarrassment. But what reason does she give for failing on this last attempt across the pipe? Well, she experiences something that she can't understand, but, you know, with so many mobile phones around nowadays, there's plenty of evidence that what she experienced um, nobody else could see, although she does play back a video and there is something there that makes her think that I'm not imagining this and I need to go looking for some reasons. Well, she does feel possessed in a way. She does. And again, there's so many layers to the word mad and we can't just take it in one context. And one thing that I did that sort of sparked this idea was some of the reasons why women were committed to asylums back in the 1800s. Um, Many different reasons, including being kicked in the head by a horse or reading too many novels was another reason why they were committed. Um, But there was this very interesting line that mentioned a gathering in the head. And if I looked at it from an 1800s perspective, that seemed to hint at possession or maybe schizophrenia. But when I reframed it in a contemporary sense, to me it felt like the kind of pressure kids are under today it's enormous pressure, and as you say, it's constant. Yeah. But then there's another suggestion that comes out, her mother having been haunted in a way, and again, we find out some reasons for that, which mm-hmm. we won't go into, but there's another concern. Will I end up like my mother or, you know, that hereditary... Yes aspect as well. The the anxiety um, and possibly it touches on mental illness, although I don't think of this as a mental illness book. Um, It's not about that. It's about things that affect a lot of kids today and certainly adults too. Well, Grace is holding it together and Grace has got valid reasons. So it's Mm. it's not a case of mental illness, but it's a case of an adolescent facing all of these challenges simultaneously and working out a path through life. She's genuinely torn between this is how I'm experiencing life right now and this is how everyone tells me I'm experiencing life right now, which is the more valid experience. And also you have the expectation of this is how you should be experiencing yes. life right there are, now. There are rules for everybody, rules for adults, rules for teenagers. And and they all conflict yeah. because your parents want you to behave one way, yes. school chums another. And, yes. Yeah, and and then like... you have people saying, take risks, you know, you take risks, you'll go further or don't take risks, you'll get hurt. But here we go now, because we've got then another dimension that comes in. We have 
William Dean and Hannah Holt. Can you give us some background on both of those? Because these are the people who she thinks she's touched by. That's right. Um, She gets caught up in a mystery, a 23-year-old mystery of a missing girl, Hannah, whose body was never found, and William Dean, who was prime suspect in her disappearance. Um, And he died, he committed suicide a year after Hannah disappeared. So this mystery has never been solved. And Grace is convinced that she is being possessed or haunted by the Swanston ghosts and particularly Hannah and she thinks that Hannah's speaking to her and so she resolves that the the way she can clear her mind and get rid of this gathering in her head is to um, solve the mystery, find Hannah and the ghosts will go away. But this is a challenge that many before have taken up and failed to resolve. Many people before and there there's, it gets quite convoluted because we're talking about a small town, we're talking about people who know each other and um, William Dean as the town monster was once somebody's child and it gets quite heated. It gets quite heated because those that know what happened are still in the town and also Grace's mother was involved. Yes, this is how it, it all starts to tie in and you, you begin to wonder how someone like Grace, who's supposedly mad, is finding out things that other people couldn't find out. But we discover, and we've got to be very careful here about not giving too much away, because there are explanations for some of the things. I mean, Grace's fish disappear or the, uh, yes. the, the, the axolotl me- <laughs> uh, disappear. Are we able to uh, perhaps provide the listener with some insight as to what's happened in those okay, sorts so of Okay, so I intended for this book to be read in two ways, and that is from the perspective of the sceptic and the believer. And I'm fairly sure by the time you reach the end of the book, you will have picked a side. And I wrote the book from a sceptic's perspective, so I really needed to make sure that everything that happens to Grace has a rational explanation, which complicated things when it came to plots. But what it brought together for me was that even in the act of writing it, I had a sense of believing in things that I didn't necessarily believe in before. Well, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your (laughs) philosophy. You then provide the psychologist. The subconscious is a powerful storage bank of incredible details, so much more powerful than the conscious mind. It's likely that you've seen them before. So Grace had actually done some drawings of people she'd never met, but or Mm -hmm. thinks she'd never met. There's a psychological explanation. Um, Sleep paralysis is my theory, which is another thing when she's feeling overwhelmed, um, like as if someone was sitting on her chest and she couldn't Mm. breathe. Sleep paralysis is my theory. It's a reasonably common occurrence. Harmless, but frightening. Also then, Grace has imagined certain things. An overactive imagination and catastrophic thinking can be symptoms of extreme anxiety. So there are logical medical explanations for some of what is happening. As there are for most um, strange experiences or urban legends, things like that, we can trace these back to a rational explanation most of the time. I think as human beings, we like to be able to label things. We want to be able to understand them. And we don't like things that creep up on us and have no explanation. Now, I think we can say safely that the puzzles about uh, William and Hannah are resolved, but we're not going to tell 
the no, listener that's a, how. That's a big spoiler. So you're going to have to read the book. But then the way you end the book allows for that supernatural to remain, the hint there. Yeah, again, I think I think you will come to your own conclusion at the end of this book. But um, the main storyline has a satisfying ending, but there are there are things that I can't convince the reader one way or the other, so I did not want to make a decision for them. But how important is it to have the inexplicable or the unknown as part of a story? Well, I can't imagine. I mean, imagine living in a world where we, we will never discover a new species or we will never find out another another scientific, you know, fact, something. Imagine if that all stopped. We stopped learning. We stopped growing. We stopped being interested in things because we knew it all. I can't imagine life being like that. But then the way we know, because there's that sense of deja vu. I mean, we've got all these terms in the language we do. for the other Yes. which are an integral part in many ways of how we know or how mm. we classify people. That person is touched or the Scots have people are a wee bit fey that mm-hmm. can, you know, read the future. And there are people that put great faith in that. Yeah. And I, I have been to a, um, a couple of psychics once when I was younger, when I really did believe, and then older again as a sceptic and for research purposes and I found myself just swayed ever so slightly because this lady was very, very good. And also she I, she believed herself and that was a big thing. And I, I thought, well, you know, I have to walk. I don't walk away thinking that she can predict what's going to happen to me, but I walk away feeling like she has a deeper a spiritual connection that I don't get. And then you, we do have psychologists and we have a lot more of them today yeah. who give the rational explanation, which at times can be quite unsatisfying. It's unsatisfying and, and there's a expectation that we treat these symptoms that we have rather than sometimes this is really important to me in, in telling Grace's story. She learns to control and accept the way that she experiences the world. For a while she gives in to what everyone's expectations of hers that you, we treat this but she finds a sort of peace and acceptance in her own way. Peace and acceptance in her own way. The friendship group and the support you can get there, uh, the ability to communicate, the communication channels break down at times, are resolved, uh, form with other people, which allow you to move through these challenging yep. times. Well, in essentially this story is about Grace being in limbo. Everyone's moving on without her. People, Some people move f- through grief faster than others and Grace is taking her time. Um, her friends are moving on. They're getting serious about school and they're studying more and they're trying to, you know, they're looking at the next stage of their life. Grace is stuck. She's like a ghost herself, stuck in a place. And that's, in it, well, natural that people do that, that people divide, go different paths, especially at year 12. Yes. That's a major turning point. Yeah. Uh, some the students look at it as the end, but it's only just the beginning, really. <laughs> I think ways. of it I think of this age as the beginning, beginning of something new. Well, I've been talking to Vicky Wakefield today. The novel is Ballad for a Mad Girl and it's uh, through text publishing and it delves a little into the supernatural and as Vicky has said, she has made it possible for the reader to make up their own mind, but you can read it and find out what happened to Hannah Holt and who was responsible for the death of William Dean. Thank you, Vicky. Thank you, David.
There you go, Jen. Wow, fancy having psychics and missing people involved in both our books today. Well, that was just a coincidence, really, yes. (laughs) Well, my author today was Kylie Ladd and her book The Way Back by Alan and Unwin.